Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of True Crime on Easy Street. I'm Katie Givens. I'm still not a lawyer. Scott Wright, mediocre journalist. Kelly Turner, not a doctor. And we're excited to get into part two today. Scott. Are we? Really? We Did we do it all last week, though? No, because here's here's what you didn't tell me. Uh-huh. You did. You talked about deep throat, yeah, but you didn't give us the one hundred and one of Got deep it. throat. All right, today, and then you talked about Watergate, mm-hmm. but I still don't know what happened got at it. Watergate. All right, yeah, I've got and a I'm solution. Not, I'm not saying these things to criticize. I'm just no, no. I want you to where yeah. we left off because you gave us a, an excellent prequel. Mm-hmm. We had the Watergate okay. prequel. Well, that. That's perfect. I have for a my full intro. understanding of the the time, the break in at the, the psychiatrist's office, right? The reason for that, mm-hmm. and then fast forward a year later, or nine months later, mm, a year later, a year later, a year later, Watergate. Yeah. Okay, so what we're going to do today, mm-hmm. since we, we we did all of that last week, it was kind of a bum rush of information, and I, I listened to it. I, I texted you guys on Wednesday. And I was like, "Holy cow, I'm all over the place on this thing. I don't feel like I made any headway." But no, you I, guys, I listened back, and I didn't okay. get that. At all. And, and my 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 coworker Denny said, "No, no, no. There was just a lot of information. You yeah, had to lay it all out. It's a lot. Yeah. So what we're going to do today to try and mop that up and clean it up and make it something that everybody can understand." We're going to do the first half of today's show is going to be a timeline. Oh, great. That walks us through the whole thing. All right. See, I work well with that. Okay. The first half is going to be a timeline. Okay. And then then we're going to take the commercial break. And then the second half, I have chosen one person who is uh, very pertinent to this story. Mm -hmm. And we're going to go back and tell the story one more time from his perspective. Now, I like that because we did that with Lincoln. Yeah. Or you did that. Mm-hmm. We kind did, of, and kind I, of a recap. I really yeah. liked it. Yeah, it's, I liked it a lot. Okay, so we'll we'll give it a shot and see if uh, we'll throw it to the wall and see if it sticks. I bet it's going to stick. Yeah, uh, we'll see. It's going to stick like a wet noodle. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Do you? All right. Side yes. Bar, side bar. I used to do that. Did you do that yes. to test to make to sure your, was your spaghetti was done? <laughs> no. I hey, have this never. is not a cooking podcast, but but let me give you some advice. And that's not cook. Good cooking advice. It's not, yeah. but it works. If you're wondering if your spaghetti noodles are, are done. Throw one against the wall. You can throw one against the wall, and if it sticks, they're done. Yep. The starches the, are out. Probably the the best thing, though, is not to do that and just take a bite of one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I feel like I just set the timer, and it's always it's always worked out. You can do that as well. You can you can look at the back of the box. Yeah, that was like the 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 college method of checking to see if your uh, pasta was ready. Uh-huh. It was it was fun and it's tried and true. It yeah. works every time. It's I mean, seventy percent of the time it works. Although it seems time. I recall that one time we threw so much pasta against the wall that by the time we all sat down to eat, there was nothing left. Oh no! no you just eat it off the wall yeah. in college. We probably care. did. <laughs> All right, more cooking tips next time on <laughs> Try on yeah, Easy Street. Yeah. Yeah, Tune in next week. Don't come at me for that. <laughs> if you want, if you want the sauce recipe to go with that uh, pasta, it's mm-hmm. that's next week. It consists of opening a jar. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like Rao. Yeah. Yes, that's the best. Yeah. You can't go wrong with that one. Uh. Uh-uh. Wait, which one? It R A O. Oh, I use ragu. Oh, so just add too. a G, and it's the same thing. <laughs> right. Not really. No. Not really. But anyways, mm-hmm. 
I digress. That's all right. We're going to do that a lot today. I want you guys to jump in. I want you to chime in. I want you to ask questions. I want you to... to, okay. to but about Watergate. Yes. Not about, not about Well, whatever. It, we'll see where it goes. All right. So this. Watergate is the office building. But there is also yeah. a Watergate Hotel. Yeah, it's all in one big area okay. there. It's across the Potomac from uh, main te- uh, downtown Washington, D.C. Okay. But it's this big complex, and it was brand new, really, in the early 70s when all this happened. There's a residential area. A lot of influential people in the republic, in, in politics in general, uh, had apartments okay. in the residential area okay. of the Watergate. And then it's like a shopping mall downstairs, and then there's a hotel, and there are pools, and it, it was just this big, brand new complex. It looks from the air like a, it looks like a cruise ship. I mean, it's, it's several mm-hmm. different buildings, but they're all, uh, they're curved, and they kind of set against each other. It's, you just have to see a photo to understand, but it's, it's this big complex. Is it still? Still there. Is it still named the same? I think so. Okay. It'd be nuts to change the name, right? Oh, Everybody wants to stay here. at the Watergate. Yeah, yeah. Well, and but they broke into an office, uh-huh. and that's what we're going to talk about. Correct. Okay. Right, okay. Right. So here's our timeline. So we're going to go back just a little bit. Some of this will sound redundant from last week, but it 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 will flow, I think. Okay. And if it doesn't, Katie can cut it. Okay. So. The story that we talked about a lot last week happened in June of 1971, and that's when Dan Ellsberg released the Pentagon Papers, yes, which have mm-hmm. nothing to do with Watergate until they do. Which I wish they had given it or left the original title. I know that's not as cool sounding yeah. as the Pentagon Papers, but I have no idea what you're talking about when you say the Pentagon Papers. Okay, I mean I do now. Yeah, right. But with the original title. Mm-hmm. I knew exactly what I was about to read or, yeah. you know, anyways, whatever. No, it's fine. So that happened in June of 71. And the Pentagon Papers were that 7,000-page document that Robert McNamara had requested that the government write. And it was supposed to be an honest uh, uh, look back at what had gotten the United States into Vietnam and how they had perpetrated or conducted the Vietnam War from 47 to 68. So 20 years of Vietnam is what the Pentagon Papers is. So a month after that happened in June of 71, the Nixon administration creates a special investigations unit. I think I called it the special intelligence unit last week, which is ridiculous, of course, because there's nothing intelligent about anything that I'm about to tell you. Mm -hmm. It was the special investigations unit, quickly came to be known as the plumbers. Okay. Mm -hmm. And their job initially... They called themselves the plumbers because they were going to plug a leak. Yep. Yeah. They're here to fix leaks. They're going to fix this leak. They create a lot more leaks than they ever plugged, it turned out. And that's, well, that's why okay we had a president resign. It's <laughs> okay because that's, that was their purpose. They wanted yes. to, you know. They wanted to something. find out. The suspicion was at the time that the communists were helping Ellsberg to release this information to make America look bad. I mean, it was a legitimate, maybe to begin with at least, national security concern. And the FBI wasn't doing their job. The CIA wasn't doing their job, at least not to the expectations of the Nixon administration. Mm. And so they created this special investigations unit, i.e. the plumbers. And so in September of 71, the plumbers broke into Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office in Beverly Hills because they're looking for some connection. Maybe he's told his psychiatrist that the communists are helping him. Or maybe he's a nut and they can uh, 
lambaste him in the press and make him look bad. And see, that's just, it's still wild to me that this ever happened. It is. Everybody it is, did it. It's terrible. Everybody broke into other people's psychiatrist's Every, office. Well, maybe so not wild. the psychiatrist's <laughs> office. That's what I'm saying. That's dirty a, tricks. That's it, a low blow. Dirty yeah. tricks was more common in politics than anybody ever understood at the time. Well, it's still. This was yeah, when it, <laughs> this was when the American people realized, holy shit, these politicians are for real. They're all doing this to each other. It was the first time the American people ever realized it. So early in 1972, so that was in September, that was Labor Day weekend when they broke into Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office. In early 72, the plumbers has, they're no longer concerned about the uh, Pentagon papers. They have been moved to the committee to reelect the president. Yeah, re-election time. Creep. Yeah, as creep, it is known. Which is creep. insane too. Like, yeah. So need, they needed a marketing department. Yeah, they have they have changed their focus, the plumbers have, from trying to figure out what has happened with this uh security league. Mm-hmm. Now they're just going to go after they're gonna try to make the Democrats look bad. And I'm sure the Democrats had the same organization in their I mean, everybody's guilty of the dirty yes. politics. Yeah, but we're, we're just specifically talking about But these are the guys who yeah. got caught. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So what happened is John Mitchell is the attorney general for Richard Nixon. He resigns in March of 1972, and he's going to head up the president's reelection campaign, which is CREEP, C-R-P. And that's when G. Gordon Liddy and E. Howard Hunt and Howard Hunt is the guy that we're going to talk about after the break. He, he's the eyeballs. We're going to look through this whole thing okay? At, in the second half. But that's when Liddy and Hunt focused their attention on trying to find ways to screw the Democrats in advance of the 72 election. Mm-hmm. And now Hunt is Woody Harrelson in the show? Yes. Mm-hmm. Woody Harrelson plays E. Howard Hunt in The White House Plumbers on HBO. If you look up a picture or of Max. the actual man, they they couldn't look any different. It's pretty close. I mean, no, yeah. no, no, no. They look very different. Oh, I think it's pretty close. I, it, he looks nothing like Woody Harrelson. Well, I mean, his head's thinner, <laughs> but you know the hair and and Woody's trying to do that thing with his with his jaw where yeah, he, he does, uh, Woody does an incredible job. Yeah, Woody does great. It's I'm not I'm not discounting. I'm just saying you know. I thought they looked pretty close. Not as close as Justin Thoreau looks to what G. Gordon Liddy looked like. <laughs> oh, That's yeah. That's no, frighteningly I'm, I'm close. I'm with Kelly on this one. Okay, all right. <laughs> I defer to you guys. All right. Um, in May of 1972, we're, we're into 72 now. In May of 72, J. Edgar Hoover, who had been the head of the CIA, um, the uh, FBI, rather, for four decades, he died. That created a situation where Nixon could nominate someone to replace him that would be a flunky of his and would do his bidding. Mm-hmm. And that guy's name was L. Patrick Gray. And he was a Nixon flunky 100%. So just store that somewhere. So let's get to the end of May of 72. Hunt and Liddy, they have supervised the first break-in of the Watergate uh, business complex. And that's where the Democratic National Headquarters is located. Yes. One of the people who helped them do that was sort of sort of foisted onto them. It wasn't somebody that they chose to be a member of their group, but he was a former CIA employee, and he was good at electronic eavesdropping. He, he knew how to plant bugs in phones and uh, fake uh, f- smoke alarms on the walls that were 
that had microphones inside. His name was James McCord. But he doesn't, things don't go as planned on May the 28th. And so they have to break in again because they don't get all of the information that they want. One of the bugs in one of the phones doesn't work. They end up having to break into the place four times. Turns out the guy was not an expert. Not as much as you might think. I mean, he was in his 50s. Maybe he was phoning it in, kind of like I'm doing here today. I was about to say, he could have joined our team. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's not an expert either. No. Um, So it was the fourth break-in. Four times. Yeah, on June the 17th. See, this is why you you always do the three strikes, you're out rule. Yeah. If they had done that, guess what? They would have never been arrested. You're right. They would have never been caught. Three strikes and you're out. You know what? Something is trying to tell us. Yeah. They wanted to go back in one more time and just try and fix things. And there's a, this immaculate Watergate complex is on one side of this six lane highway. And across the street is this dingy little Howard Johnson's motel. The the Howard Johnson's. Yeah. And that's where the, the security team is, they're watching. They, they've gotten a room that's right across the street. Mm-hmm. And the DNC was on the sixth floor okay. that faced the highway. So they could watch everything that happened. Mm-hmm. And we'll get to that. That happened on June the 17th, the break-in where they got caught, the tape on the door. That's how they got busted, right? The, the security guard saw the tape on the door and he pulled the tape off. And then he comes back an hour later. Somebody's put the tape back on. That's when he calls the cops. Tell me about the tape on the door. What well, the the... The idea was that one of the guys came into the parking deck from inside the building. So he's got access to the parking deck, but the parking deck door is going to lock behind him when it shuts. So he puts tape over the lock, over the door mechanism, so that the burglars can come in from the parking deck and access that stairway and get up to the sixth floor. Okay. Well, before they get there... Mm -hmm. A security guard sees the tape and he rips it off. And then he goes and takes a break. He comes back an hour later. One of the guys from upstairs has come back down and put the tape on the door again. Somebody else is coming in later. They've noticed that the tape is off for whatever reason. They've put the tape back on. And then the same security guard notices the tape again. And that's when he calls the cops. And that's when it's everybody like gets caught. Some, somebody is, is somebody's up to right. no good. Yeah. So yeah. tape on a door. Yeah. That's how they got caught. Why didn't they all go in at the same time Uh, and then all leave at the same time? I'm guessing that question got asked a lot in the days after June the 17th, 1972. It just seems like that would be easier if you all go in together and you all leave together. Yeah. I know. Okay. I don't don't know that. No no one has an answer. I don't know that that answer. Okay. If they do, they're not talking about it. All right. Two days after that happened, Martha Mitchell. Yes. We're not going to talk a lot about her, but she is the wife of former Attorney General John Mitchell, who has resigned as AG to head up the Nixon re-election campaign. Yes. She reads the LA Times two days after this happens, and she sees the picture of the five guys who have been caught in the burglary. And one of them, she recognizes as James McCord, because he used to be her bodyguard. Okay. And so she immediately knows... Oh, shit. My husband's involved in all of this. Oh, well. Yeah. You just that gut feeling. And she is a Southern belle from Arkansas who speaks her mind. Julia Roberts plays her in a uh, limited Mm -hmm. series on stars called Gaslit. Mm -hmm. And you can see a documentary on, I think it's Netflix. It's called The Martha Mitchell Effect. And that has become to be a, uh, a term in psychology for somebody who 
knows something is the truth, but is told by everyone that it is a lie or it's made up to the point where she starts to disbelieve it herself. That's the Martha Mitchell effect. It's also gaslighting. And it's gaslighting. That's exactly (laughs) what it is. Yeah. Anyway, so she starts talking to the press, and that creates a whole separate story that I'm not even going to go into, but that is part of this whole story, is Martha Mitchell freaking out, going on TV talk shows and saying, they're trying to frame my husband. I'm not going to let them get away with this. It's the president's fault. I mean, it's it's a big thing. She's brave. Yeah. yeah. Very. The next day, June the 20th, 1972, Washington Post reporter Bob Woodward writes that one of the Watergate burglars had an address book in his pocket that contained the phone number of E. Howard Hunt's White House office. Bob Woodward got that information from Deep Throat. That was one of the first times that he had reached out to Deep Throat. It's just in the days after this Watergate break-in. Nobody understands what it is. Watch all of the president's men. Okay. Yeah, because I'm confused. Go ahead. We... Okay. We have gotten to the part of the timeline mm-hmm. where we the break-in did not, whatever they were doing in there, and then the cops were called. Right. And they tried to run, I'm assuming? No, they tried to hide behind the desks in the dark at 2 o'clock in the morning. And when the three cops came in, mm-hmm. and they weren't dressed, they were dressed in, uh, they weren't wearing uniforms. They were the they were the mod squad. They were the guys who went and hung out with the, the hippies on the street corners. They were the closest group of cops when the call came in that there might be a burglary at the Watergate Hotel. So they go in and, and there's They go into the sixth there. floor and freeze. Five people in business suits stand up, hold up their hands. They're all wearing surgical gloves. They've got a bag with a bunch of electronics inside. They could take the gloves off. Well, they were hoping they weren't going to get caught and they could just go back to what they'd been doing, which was putting bugs in the phones and hanging the fake smoke alarm on the wall and going through the drawers and taking photographs of all the documentation. You know, I'm also thinking you are all in business suits and you're mm-hmm. in the Democratic headquarters. Sit down at a desk. That's what I said. Pick up a Pretend phone. Pretend like you work there. Who's going to know the difference? Yeah. And and these cops are going to be like, ah, nothing to see here. That's what I said. Just pretend like you work there. Like, oh, gosh, someone's trying to break in. We might should go home. (laughs) Holy crap. All right, we're going to call it a day. Let's go, Joe. That is probably a plan that they wish they had had in place just in case, looking back. But they didn't. Improv skills is what they need. All right, so then they get arrested, and this lady sees them. Two days later on... Sees the one person that she knows for a fact, and that's James McCord, the former CIA employee, who is also an electronics expert, who was one of the members who was caught in the Watergate. Okay, so she sees all of them, and then then she immediately starts going on all these talk shows? Well, she'd been sort of a talk show maven before that, but now when she goes on these talk shows, she's... Was her husband accused... Already, or Not she yet. knew he was going to be, and she was trying to get out ahead of it. She knew she wasn't trying to get ahead of it. She wasn't trying to save anybody. She was just she just wanted to. She's talk. the mouth of the South, and she just uh, wanted gotcha. to talk. She's like the gossip. Yes, let's talk about this. So she's yeah. going, but then everybody of- starts getting a hold of her and saying, "You're mistaken. You're wrong. Yeah, you're not the gaslighter." And she starts questioning herself. Well, she she drank a lot. So that okay. was one excuse that they always had. Well, sure. Oh, Martha just, just, you know. Drunk Martha again. Yeah, drunk Martha. She started at lunch today. Don't pay any attention to her. Okay. And, is, and, and I'm, you know, I'm all about um, 
I'm not trying to sound back in the Stone Age. All right. All right. But she is married to a, a guy who's pretty prominent. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, she's supposed to sit in her place, and she doesn't. My my question is: Does he not ever have a conversation with her? Like, okay, you're no more talk shows. Um, sure he does, but she's a dart without feathers, and so like Katie. And so she's like, <laughs> oh God. so she's like, I don't care what you say. I'm I'm going to go on the shows anyway. Yeah. Until you know, until she didn't, but yeah. And so then I'm I'm just saying, even if you don't have a good marriage. Well, she did by all accounts until this all started to happen, <sighs> and then she ended up not having one anymore. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I would. I would think. Well, so. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, all right. Okay. Anyway, so she does all of that. They gaslight her. Eventually, she's not on the shows anymore. Yeah. Where are we now? Okay. So we're now we're then five. Talk, then you bring up Deep Throat again. Yeah. When are we going to get to the point where I learned the entire story from start to finish of this person? Uh, we're just kind of, you don't. I'm just going to kind of dribble it in. Okay. That's a separate episode. What did, what did, God, there's no good way to ask this question, <laughs> but I'm going to ask All right, it, go for and it. You know what I'm talking about, okay? Yeah. All right. What did Deep Throat do? Deep Throat was we we. Well, I know who Deep Throat was. Okay, last week he's Bart oh. Felt. He's the second in command at FBI. What did he do? Yes, he kept Woodward and Bernstein headed in the right direction as they broke the news and told the story of what happened at the Watergate. How did they first come in contact with Deep Throat? Woodward had known Mark Felt for years before. This happened. Okay, they were they were they were acquaintances. Yes, uh, Woodward had been in the Navy and worked at the Pentagon. Okay. And one day he was delivering some papers to the FBI, and he was in uniform as a young naval officer. Mm-hmm. Bumped into Mark Felt, and they had something in common. I don't remember what it was. He explains it in the book, All the Presidents Men. I don't think so much in the movie, mm-hmm. but he explains it in the book, and they had something in common. And so they just kind of came to be friends. And so one day. Before Watergate happened, I think, Woodward needed some information or uh, to be pointed in a good direction for a story he was working on. Mm-hmm. And he called Mark Felt and realized that he was a good source of information as long as it was on deep background, thus the name Deep Throat. He could never quote him directly. He could never tell where he got the information. Okay, so it means... That's how they got to know the each deep other. deep background, it, it's not yeah. like some call where they're getting this call from this guy who's got a really... No, 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 no. Deep voice. That, that, that That's nickname... That's where my mind goes to. Uh, no, that nickname... send papers with magazine cutouts no. on it to... Yeah, okay. That nickname uh, was generated in the newsroom amongst the other guys. Hey, Bob, why don't you call your secret source, let's call him Deep Throat, and find out what this... They've got a pile of information that they can't really make sense out of. Let's call... Call your guy and see mm-hmm. if he can point us in a direction. And so he would say yes or no or or say whatever. He was he was and limited at he some... trusted he was off the record. Correct. He had he had he trusted Bob Woodward to keep his name obviously. And obviously he did. He did for because... thirty years. We didn't find out in who Mark uh, who Mark Felt was until Mark Felt admitted it himself yep. in two thousand and five in a Vanity Fair article. That yep. is that is crazy that Woodward and Bernstein kept that secret so for a long time. Didn't even tell Bill what, Bradley and, and okay. Catherine Graham. Didn't tell their bosses who it was. Okay. So that is, that is, okay, that's cleared yeah. up for me. All okay, right, now, good. Now where are yeah. we? All right, now so what's going on? Now we're five days after the break-in. The break-in was on the 17th. This is June the 23rd. 
And there's a conversation in the White House that no one yet knows that an audio tape exists of this conversation. It's going to be two years before we find out, before the nation finds out, that this conversation was recorded. Okay. But the gist of the conversation between President Nixon and two of his senior advisors that we mentioned last week, Bob Haldeman and John Ehrlichman, they are trying to figure out a way to get the CIA to reach out to the FBI and say, stop investigating the Watergate case because it's a national security matter. That's the cover-up. Mm-hmm. That is the obstruction of justice that eventually forces Richard Nixon to resign. It's the video, the audio tape of that conversation five days later on June the 23rd, 1972. Saying, we don't hear that for two years. Him saying, stop investigating. <clears throat> Him saying, reach out to the FBI. We've got our flunky in, right? We've got uh-huh. our, this L. Patrick Gray is our flunky, who is the interim head of the FBI since uh, Hoover has passed away. Mm-hmm. We're going to have the CIA reach out with a letter, a memo, some sort of official documentation and say, stop investigating this. And our boy Gray is going to go, oh, look, guys, we can't do this anymore. The, the CIA says to you. shut it down. Yep. That's I how that works. That worked. Th- this is Didn't the only work. piece... That ever sticks in my head of this story. That part right there? Is the is that there was a recording of a conversation. Yeah. Who recorded this? Uh, President Nixon had an audio recording system set up in the White House in 1971. And so from 71 until 70, sometime in 73, uh, everything that was spoken in mm-hmm. the, the Oval Office in the White House. And Nixon also had another office across the street at the old executive office building mm-hmm. where he kind of got away and could hide and actually get some work done. Mm-hmm. Those conversations were also recorded. Are you telling me his dumbass has recorded himself? Yes. <laughs> and then didn't delete it. Yeah, there's, lose there's, it or something. He has set this up. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, there's one conversation that the prosecutors have amongst themselves and they're sitting around chuckling about exactly what you're saying and and one of the prosecutors says Nixon hit himself with his own bat. Yeah. I, okay, mm-hmm. I I don't I don't think I put those pieces together mm-hmm. that that's how that worked. Yeah, he recorded himself. So he wow. wanted It's for posterity. It's it's so that when he writes his memoirs 20 years down the road, Whoa. he will have conversa- he'll have recordings of all these conversations that he's had in his office. That didn't That's age the well. purpose of it being placed there to begin with. For a possible book of memoirs. <clears throat> That's correct. But he can't keep his mouth shut. Well, they don't think that they have to. Because, because Nixon thinks this these recordings are going to be my personal property. This is not government property. This is mine. You guys can't have them. And they don't know about them for two years. And then when the, when the fight starts to happen and the, the existence of the audio tapes is revealed, in the Senate Watergate hearings. Who reveals that? His name is Andrew Butterfield, and he is the Secret Service agent who was in charge of installing it to begin with. And when he was asked under oath in front of the Senate Watergate Committee, do you have any knowledge of a recording system in the White House, in the Oval Office, he told the truth and said yes. But, you know, in a hearing, most of the time, the people asking the questions know the answers before they ask. Yeah, them. That, somebody knew the answer so to that question. So he had come forward. Somebody or somebody had. That's what I'm trying to get at. That was Who the first, first time that it was officially. Mm-hmm. Uh, but somebody knew the answer to that when they somebody, asked the question. Well, the rumor was the rumor was afoot in Washington D.C. Everybody knew. Hey, Nixon's got a taping system. Somebody asks somebody about it, and once they say, "Yeah, the tape 
exists, the tapes, many of them mm-hmm. existed. Then we're going to go pull them. Then we're going to we're going to subpoena them and make them turn them over as evidence. And that's what happened. Yep. And I mean, Nixon was a lawyer at one point, right? He was. Okay. But again, he thinks it's his thinks it's his personal property. Right. This but is it's not- that conversation where they talk about having the CIA and the FBI scuttle the investigation that ends up that's the smoking gun of Watergate. Gotcha. When you hear the smoking gun. Well, you hear him admit. <clears throat> yeah. Well, not yet. But I mean, you do. Yeah. Eventually. But he does. Okay. So it's that was in uh that was in June, and then in September of seventy two. This is uh four months after the break in at the Watergate. Hunt, Liddy, McCord, and those Cuban Americans who mm-hmm. broke into the Watergate, they are indicted by a federal grand jury. Okay. Uh, in November of seventy two. The country didn't really care anything about Watergate. It was still all over the place. Nobody understood exactly what the details were. Kind of like... Still. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, kind of yeah. like if you don't know it, you don't know it. And, the, and the, the country at the time didn't. Anyway, Nixon is reelected in the largest landslide in American history at the time. Yeah, that's... So all of this was, was useless. Yeah. Acting like this, I mean, he would have gotten elected anyway. Correct. Yeah, it didn't, all of these things that they did, it was was just things that they did because everybody else did it and they didn't want to be behind the curve. But yeah, um, by the time they broke into the Watergate, uh, McGovern was the Democratic candidate. Mm -hmm. We talked about this. He was winning. Nixon was winning. Nixon was going to win handily. Mm -hmm. I've never heard of McGovern. Again, four times. George McGovern. Four times. After three times and you're out, look. We're out, guys. We've tried this three times. Yeah. He's mm-hmm. going to win anyway. Let's just keep going, yeah. Well, it was the higher-ups. It wasn't Liddy and Hunt who wanted to do it again. It was the higher-ups, the people who were pulling their strings. It was Mitchell and the other guys uh, at the committee Bud, to reelect the president. Oh, was it Bud Krogh or whatever? Bud Krogh, yeah. And, uh, uh, and and David Young and Jeb Magruder was another guy, but we're not going to get into Lord. their names. Yeah, there was a, a lot of guys pulling the strings at the committee to reelect the president. And Lydia and Hunt were working for those guys. The plumbers unit was working for the committee to reelect at the time. I'm, I'm just so curious. they did what they were told. I'm curious because they wanted to, to get paid. But I'm curious as to why they wanted to keep going. I mean, if you're trying to get the president reelected and you're like looking at the numbers and going, "Oh, this is we're good, guys." I don't know. We're going to get paid, and we why don't not to do a pile thing. on. Why not pile on while you're at it? I guess. Why not just get paid and not have to do a thing? He's going to uh, win. It would have been a better and idea. Say, see, look what we did. Yeah. I guess, did they have the accurate pollings back then? Yeah, they had Gallup polling and Harris polling, as accurate as it could be. I'm sure it was phone polling. Obviously, they didn't trust it, or they would have. They didn't trust anything, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, we've got this money. We've got these zealous, overzealous idiots who want to break into office buildings. Let's let them do it. I mean, everybody does it. We won't get caught. If we do, we'll deny it. Did they have a ton of money? Because I can remember like that first episode of the White House Plumbers on HBO mm-hmm. when he, when Lydia and Hunter are like, yeah, we need a million dollars, and they're like, okay, yeah, yeah, is that accurate? Sure, I mean, yeah. Around- well, the, I'm sure they didn't want to spend the the committee to reelect didn't want to spend a million dollars on all of these dirty tricks, but they ve- sure. eventually settled on two hundred fifty thousand yeah. dollars. But sure, they had the money, they had the money to spend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did so, they know they broke in uh, three times and failed? Uh, that's there's some conjecture about exactly I, how forthcoming thinking, they were about their previous failed efforts. Because I'm in. thinking if I'm t- telling these guys to keep doing this and I learn that they have failed three times mm-hmm. to get into this building, I'm going to say, let's pack it up, guys. Yeah. We're done. Well, Howard Hunt thought that same thing, but we'll get to that. Okay. All right. All right. So uh, it seems like every time I tell any story 
March the 17th always comes up. Always. Why is that? Kelly it's Turner. A magical day. The anniversary of Kelly's birth. Yeah. Uh, on March the 17th, 1973, you weren't okay, with us yet. That's not the anniversary of yeah, my birth. You weren't, you weren't with us yet. Um, wait a minute. Let me go back. I have to go back to January of 73. That's when the five Watergate burglars, including Howard Hunt, okay. pled guilty. Okay, pled guilty. Liddy and McCord did not plead guilty, but they were convicted after a trial. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and its select theaters. Rated R. In March, on March the 17th, 1973, before he was sentenced, McCord wrote a letter to the judge in which he claimed that he and others had lied during the trial Mm -hmm. under oath. Their testimony had been fabricated. They were covering up for higher up people in the food chain, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And that's really when everything started to unwind. Because it's like, we can give you somebody better. I mean, you've got us. but. Here's what you need to know. I don't know where he thinks this letter is getting him at this stage. Well, though. it got him out of jail. Uh-huh. Did it? Yes. Oh, it thank because he, he turned state's evidence and he did not. Everybody else went to jail. Yeah. McCord did not. Huh? So it worked. So this was like more dealing with the prosecutors and all I'm guessing. Yeah, that's correct. He's like, hey. Yeah. So Would for, you like to trade me for a president? Yeah. Uh, he had, he didn't. <clears throat> say it quite that explicitly, but that's certainly what he was pointing towards. Mm-hmm. Four days after that, there's a another conversation in the White House between President Nixon and his personal counsel, John Dean, in which John Dean says, Mr. President, there is a cancer on the presidency and it is growing every day. And what he meant by that was that the guys who were caught mm-hmm. at the Watergate are starting to ask for money. They don't have jobs anymore. They don't have any way to pay their lawyers. They don't have any way to bail themselves out. And so the White House has to start giving money to these guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you do. To to pay their salaries and to help. And to buy their silence. And to buy their silence. Mm -hmm. That's correct. And one of those guys who's asking for money is Howard Hunt. But as I will explain in the second half of this, Howard Hunt never thought that he was blackmailing the presidency. He had been with the CIA for 21 years. And in his mind, Anytime a CIA agent got caught, they got paid. The agency took care of his family. Mm-hmm. And so as far as he's concerned, so he's wanting you should do family. for me what the CIA was going to do for me when I worked for them. So in his mind, he's not blackmailing the president, but in everybody else's mind, it's blackmail. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I get where he's coming from. Sure. Me too. I yeah. mean, you've employed all of these men to do these very specific things that you've told them to do. You expect it's to time be t- to pay the piper. In the interest of patriotism and national security, you're not doing anything illegal as far as you're concerned if you're that's Howard you, Hunt. And that's what you've said to, the whole time. This is this is national security. Yeah. And, Nobody's and even we, broached the topic of it being something illegal. And then Howard Hunt goes, holy shit, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. You're going to try to send me to jail for doing what the president of the United States told me to do in the interest of national security? Yeah, that's wild. It is. That's what. That's where Howard Hunt was coming from. I mean, I get it. Mm-hmm. I get it. I mean, a I get week it. after that, John Dean decided he was going to cooperate with the federal prosecutors. I'm sure. They're, the rats are scurrying about. Mm. 
three weeks after that, that Nixon flunky Patrick Gray, who's going to run the FBI and do his bidding, well, he has to withdraw his nomination because it turns out that he admitted during his confirmation hearings that he destroyed evidence that he was given by John Dean. Wow. It came from Howard Hunt's safe in his White House, off, uh, White House office. Yeah, you don't get to be ahead of the FBI when you do that. I don't think you get to run a popsicle stand if you do that. I'm not sure what Gray did after that. <laughs> Somewhere between a popsicle stand and uh, running the FBI, I'm guessing. I don't know. Was he a lobbyist? Maybe. <laughs> Go into that. Um, that was on April the 27th of 1973. Three days later, President Nixon came onto television uh, that night and addressed the nation and announced that his chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, his chief domestic policy advisor, John Ehrlichman, his attorney general, uh, John Kleindienst, and John Dean had all resigned. That's a lot, Mr. President. This is President Nixon's first attempt to sweep Watergate under the Oval Office rug. Mm -hmm. They've all resigned. We didn't have anything to do. I didn't know anything about it. Nothing These guys might here. have. They're gone. Yep. Let's get on with Let's the country's move business. Forward. Yeah. yeah. The next month in May of 73, the Senate Watergate Committee began its hearings and Dean's cooperating and all these other people are cooperating. Two days after that, uh, the new attorney general appointed a guy named Archibald Cox to be a special prosecutor. And we've all heard about special prosecutors yeah. in our lives. I mean, mm -hmm. Kenneth Starr with uh, Clinton and uh, there've been several since. The first time the Justice Department had ever appointed a special prosecutor was Archibald Cox on May the 19th, 1973. So that established a precedent that has sort of haunted us, haunted the nation to this day because, and not haunted, but if you want to appear to be investigating something without the political machinations getting involved, then you appoint a, an independent special prosecutor an and let him do person. it. And yeah. then you don't worry about it and let him go about his business. Mm -hmm. That was Archibald Cox. It was on July the 13th, 1973, Kelly, when Alexander Butterfield told that same Senate Watergate committee about the existence of the audio tape system okay. in the White House. Okay. And so now we know. And the happiest person in the world that day was John Dean, because he had been telling the Senate Watergate committee about all the conversations he'd had with the president. Mm -hmm. But up until that point, and Dean did not know about the audio tape system. Oh, so he he. It was thinking, his word against the president's. Oh, yeah. Until now, they can hear it for themselves. Yeah. So, where were these tapes? They were in the basement in the White House. It was the next month when it was July eighteenth of seventy three when Nixon had that system shut off permanently. And I'm, I'm he's just late shot. to the party, but he shut it down. I'm just. Um, There's a closet in the basement of the White House where all of these cables run. And they've got six or eight tape decks running all the time, and or, or one's running all the time. And when that one runs out, it goes down to the next one. And it's a Secret Service agent's job to keep new tapes in these machines at all times. And then when they run out, they put them in a box. Destroyed once yeah. this became public. I am shocked. I am too. That they're they're literally in a basement somewhere. The, a basement can flood. There are people. A basement yeah, can do right? all of these. I mean, yeah. it's never recording properly. The rats yeah. chewed the, it. Yeah, the fire the fire alarm went off and the sprinklers destroyed everything. Mm -hmm. There was there were several people who said to Nixon, one guy in particular, I think it was Mitchell, who said, take all of these tapes, 
call a press conference in the Rose Garden, pile them all up, pour gasoline over them and burn them and say, they're mine. I can do what I want with them. Because until they are subpoenaed by a court, Mm -hmm. that's not illegal. But this is another example of him truly truly believing that he is above the law. Correct. These are mine. They're mine. You can't take mine. You can't take that away from me. Leave them in the basement. It's fine. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's what I'm, when I, why I asked, was he not a lawyer? Because I would think that he would run through all these scenarios on mm. how they can get their hands on A lot story. of smart guys in the Nixon White House, and they still let this all happen. I don't understand how it I think I it really calls don't. into question how smart these guys are. Yeah, I'm, I'm, just, right. I'm just, maybe uh, we needed more women in this White House. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm just baffled that they, they, uh, I'm, that, there's so many things I'm baffled about. But, but you're, when they're in that office building, and I guess it, it further demonstrates when mm-hmm. you're talking about Hunt. I mean, he knew what he was doing was was wrong because they're breaking in at night. They're not just walking in doing that. Yeah. But it's under this blanket of national security. That's right. And it's and it but again, why wouldn't you act like you're working in the office building? Well that's sub, that's subterfuge too, right? I mean that's 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 but also just so focused dishonest. on what maybe in their convoluted minds that would be more dishonest than that. It it almost makes it better for them in my mind that they didn't do that. Yeah. They just said, okay, you, yeah. you know, you got us. But I guarantee you, those guys thought they were going to get down to the police station. Somebody was going to make a phone call to the yes. White House, yes. and, and they were over. all going to walk out the front door. So and that saying, didn't happen. National security. So what the president did was he and his men, what whoever, yeah. Alderman Ehrlichman. They got the, uh, yeah, when they got caught, they just severed the the parachute. Yeah, that's right. Just let them, let them twist in the wind. Pretty much. I mean, they were wow. sort of like soldiers on a mission. Like, you know, they don't. Yeah. And the totally present, expendable. Totally yeah. expendable. I mean, we've all point. seen the opening sequence of Mission Impossible, right? Your mission, should you choose to accept it, and then the tape blows up, we'll, we'll deny accountability. That's kind of what happened. Wow. All right, so that that Nixon refused to turn over those tapes after Butterfield announced that they existed. That was in July. So this fight, it's in the court system. The Supreme Court gets involved all over, all through the summer and the fall of '73. Oh, in the middle of all of that, in October of '73, the Vice President Spiro Agnew was forced to resign because it turns out he was a crook. He was taking kickbacks from contractors while he had been the governor of Maryland before becoming Nixon's vice president, and those payments continued while he was the vice president. So when that was discovered, he was prosecuted, eventually pleaded guilty to one charge of tax evasion, and resigned on October the 10th, 1973, in the middle of all of this shit. Well, uh, gosh, I mean, who's left? Yeah, I was Nixon. That that was like, who 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 fills his spot? Well, uh, Archibald Cox is still left. He's the special prosecutor. But that ends ten days later, the famous Saturday Night Massacre, when Nixon ordered his new Attorney General uh, Elliot Richardson to fire Archibald Cox. Let's just end this. We're going to fire this guy. The whole this whole investigation is going away. Richardson refused and resigned. So Nixon turned to his number two, Ruckel's house, and said, you fire Cox. Ruckel who? Ruckel's house. Ruckel's house said, I'm not doing it. He resigned. It was the third guy in line who finally said, okay, I'll fire Archibald Cox as a special prosecutor. Can you do that? The president can. 
the president can fire the special prosecutor that is. Well, he's okay, the, I guess he's, he's the not, head of the executive branch not, of the government. I guess yeah. he's not prosecuting right. the president yet. Right. Okay. Not, right. not officially. Right. Okay. So, yeah. That's where my mind was going, but I guess he's not the one on trial yet. Right. So the third guy in line, Robert Bork, steps up and fires Archibald Cox, and that's going to come back to bite him in the ass 15 years later when he uh, is nominated for a position on the Supreme Court in the late 80s. Ooh, and they yeah. say, uh-uh. They run Bork's ass right out of town. Yeah. So there's a media firestorm that ensues after the firing of Archibald Cox. Tens of thousands of telegrams are sent to the White House, and Polls are taken nationwide, and for the first time, Nixon is more hated than loved as the president of the United States. It's obvious to a lot, to a majority of the country, a plurality of the country at the time, and it's his that own something doing. underhanded is happening in the White House. It's his own doing. That's correct. Yes. That, he was well-liked mm-hmm. before he started he doing was. all this. And it was really the firing of Archibald Cox. It's not going to be until the next July. It's going to be July of 74 before the House Impeachment Committee uh, filed the first article of impeachment against Richard Nixon. But the ball started rolling down the hill on October the 20th, 1973, when he fired Archibald Cox. Well, yeah. yeah. It's just suspicious. So it's, it's less than two weeks later, the president is forced to have someone else be appointed to replace Cox as the special prosecutor. His name's Leon Jaworski. It doesn't matter, but there is a special prosecutor again, two weeks later. Mm -hmm. That's how much of a blowback he got from this firing from trying to shut it all down. Uh, It's a couple of weeks after that. You've all heard Nixon look into the camera and say, the people of America want to know if their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. That's November of 73. It's a couple of weeks after He's fired Cox, and he's been forced to hire someone else. And that's when he's shaking his finger. That's that's. I'm not a crook. That's what uh, KT was telling me. He thinks of when he thinks of Watergate. Yeah, was the the, the I'm finger shaking. I'm not a crook. Yeah, I'm not a crook. Yeah. So all of this time, from November until March, this whole thing plays out in the national media and on the nightly news every night with Walter Cronkite and, and David Brinkley and whoever was on ABC at the time and in the post and in the New York times. I mean, there's some new revel- revelation every day. It seems like something's happening. Uh, deep throat is involved with the, with Woodward and Bernstein and helping them tell their story. And there's just something new all of the time. And it just keeps building this, just this morass of crap just yeah. keeps piling up. It's a heap. <clears throat> It is in March of 1974 that the new uh, uh, special prosecutor, Jaworski, and his investigators indicted former Attorney General uh, John Mitchell, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and four other Nixon aides. They're known as the Watergate Seven. Nixon was named as an unindicted co-conspirator because it was agreed by the higher-ups in the Justice Department, that you cannot indict a sitting president of the United States. The only method in the Constitution... First. It, you've got to impeach him first. That's, that's the okay. constitutional method for mm-hmm. getting rid of a crooked president. Mm-hmm. You like, impeach him. We just saw what they tried... That's what they were trying to do with Trump. Right. Yeah, yeah and that's what they did with Clinton. And, you know, that's, mm-hmm. you know... Um, that's, that, you got to do that first. Yes. And then once he's a civilian, then you can prosecute him. Yes. Theoretically. So a couple of weeks later, the judge orders those indictments um, 
to be sent to the Senate Watergate Committee. Because Nixon's crimes, like we said, are out of the hands of the judicial branch of the government at this point. It's up to the legislative branch to use the Constitution to Mm -hmm. get rid of Nixon. Mm -hmm. Uh, The next month, Jaworski subpoenaed uh, 64 more White House tapes. He wants all of the tapes at this point. They know that they're there. They know what they need. They have to make a very specific list every time they request tapes for specific conversations on specific days, and they can use the logs that show who came to visit the president Yes, to figure out which tape they want to subpoena. So a couple of weeks later, the White House refuses to release the tapes, but they offer to release 1,200 pages of transcripts of those tapes. And a lot of them are blacked out and expletive deleted. And yeah. Full of Sharpie marks. So (laughs) the next month in May of 1974, the House, not satisfied with the lack of release of the audio tapes, and it was this ball was already rolling, they began their impeachment proceedings in, in May of 74. Uh, in June of 74, Woodward and Bernstein's book, All the President's Men, hit the bookshelves. The next month, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that Nixon had to turn over all of the tapes, every tape in his possession, to the House Judiciary Committee. And I think I got some of those dates about tape releases out of whack last week, but that's, that's when it happened. That July the 24th, the Supreme Court said, you've got to turn over every tape. Just, turn, just give them all. Yes. It was three days later that the House uh, filed the first impeachment article. The smoking gun tape from 73, from June of 73 that I mentioned came out. And when that was heard between July, towards the end of July, the 1st of August of 74, Nixon's most avid supporters in the U.S. Senate, Barry Goldwater and some of those guys, went to the White House and said, look, you've lost our votes too. We're going to impeach your ass. You need to resign. Yep, do it. And so on August the 8th of 1974, Nixon announced on television that he would resign the office of the presidency at noon the next day and that Gerald Ford would be sworn in at that hour in that office. And then a month later in September of 74, new president Gerald Ford, and he'd been confirmed as vice president after Spiro Agnew resigned. Mm -hmm. uh, He granted Nixon a full pardon for anything that he had done between January the 20th, 69 and (sighs) August the 9th, 74. Here we go again with these pardons. Uh, It's early 75 when Mitchell, Haldeman, and Ehrlichman are all convicted for their part in the cover. They didn't get a pardon. They did did not. But uh, Gerald Ford lost to Jimmy Carter in the 76 election. Uh, And then it's... Did he have any plans of winning that election? I can't imagine that he did after he pardoned I, I the most that, hated man yeah that that had to be a you know i'm gonna get this vice presidency him? i'm sure he got the vice president well no i guess that's a- i i had to look that up because i couldn't figure it out either and what jimmy carter what what i read was that uh wait we're talking about gerald Ford. we're talking about nixon sorry i'm thinking about another pardon that happens later in the story uh he just said that look it's it's i think the phrase that ford used is our long national nightmare is over Let's just forget about Watergate. Let's end this now. Let's move forward. There's a lot of things going on in the world. The economy's not good. Uh, I mean, the energy crisis. He's not wrong. Let's just not drag ourselves through any. We just got out of Vietnam. Finally, let's just end this. You're. That's what that was his thought process. He's not wrong because yeah, 
this, if you think about, they they broke in to an office building. Right. What did they take? Yeah. From the office building. All they did was break a lock, technically. They didn't I mean, take anything. They didn't steal anything. And that was their attitude. We didn't we didn't do anything that, that the Johnson administration and, and the Kennedy administration and the FDR administration, basically since the existence of electronic surveillance, since mm-hmm. the ability to tape people talking. Oh my gosh, and Hoover? Everybody had done it. Hoover had been doing it for the entire time that he'd been the head yeah, of the FBI. Yeah. So, I mean, he's not wrong, but it was a, it was political, just a nightmare for yes, him. I it, mean, was it was politically done. a nightmare. It was done. That's correct. He just sealed his fate. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but, but I get what he's saying. I do too. We've spent all this money and all yeah. this time. We're out of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's, let's now do something right. Let's move forward. And it was the bicentennial year seventy six, so there was a the nation wanted to party and have a good time yeah, and, and forget about things in the past. It was mm-hmm. you know it was our bicentennial. Get so behind me, Nixon. Let's, yeah, let's party. They thought that there was enough of a base, and a lot of people still supported President Nixon. Didn't think he broke the law, so there was still a a, a base, an electorate out there. Mm-hmm. So you know, Ford took a chance and he he lost. Yeah, he did lose. He that. Took a chance and lost. Okay, it's three years before Nixon really speaks about what happened. And there's a you can watch the actual interviews with a British journalist named David Frost, or you can watch the uh, 2008 film directed by Ron Howard mm. titled Frost Nixon. Uh, Michael Sheen plays David Frost, yeah. and Frank Langella plays Nixon in the movie okay. and it's a really good movie i've watched part of it i haven't i didn't get a chance to finish it but i'm going to finish it tonight and it's a really good uh it, frost wanted to confront richard nixon he needed to be confronted and nobody in this country wanted to do it so mm-hmm. british journalist bbc journalist uh david frost invited him over paid him half a million dollars to sit down for Lord. several hours of interviews and i'm sure nixon could use the money at the time mm-hmm. um and so uh it's it's just a really good story about and it's it's pretty accurate about how that all played out. Okay. So right. something to check to check out if you're interested. So you said something about now Jimmy Carter is in office and you said something yeah. about another pardon. Yeah, um you know G Gordon Liddy was one of the people that would that he went to jail. Yes. Um along with those Cubans, uh those Cuban Americans and Hunt and everybody else, but a lot of them are already out of jail by halfway through the Carter administration. Okay. And Gordon Liddy was the last of the Watergate conspirators to still be in jail. Because he went through trial? He went through trial. That was one thing. And another thing was, anytime he got called into court to testify, he was defiant. Uh, he would stand up and start singing the, the Star Spangled Banner or uh, just refuse to talk or laugh at the judge. He got so many contempt of court charges. Oh, yeah. That that was, it, yeah. There were three or four years of contempt of court charges that had piled up. And so what uh, Carter said when he pardoned Liddy was, in the interest of fairness, everybody else who had anything to do with Watergate is long out of jail. Let's mm-hmm. let Gordon Liddy out, too. Mm. So that's how Liddy got out of jail. He served four years. That was the most anybody served mm-hmm. for their part for in the Watergate. For breaking a lock. Yeah. Picking their a part lock. in the Watergate break-in. So, um, mm. Richard Nixon died on April the 22nd, 1994, at the age of 81, after suffering a stroke. He was not given a state funeral in Washington, D.C. at his request. But all five living presidents attended his funeral at the Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. Okay. Okay. When that happened. That's nice. Um, and so we're gonna we're gonna take a little break. We're gonna talk about 
E. Howard Hunt and kind of tell the story one more time, but from E. Howard Hunt's perspective. Okay. After a word from our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you in part by A&W Outdoor Services. You know, they're located right here in Cherokee County, and I called Alan myself just a few weeks ago, and he and his crew came out to my house, pressure washed the whole thing. It looks brand new. Well, as brand new as my house can possibly look after 25 years. But all I did was call Alan at 256-706-7964. He and the guys showed up and cleaned up everything. It looked fantastic. The pollen has fallen a little bit since then. So if you haven't done this already, now is the perfect time to call Alan and A&W Outdoor Services at 256-706-7964 and let them do for you what they've already done for me. It's time to plan your best vacation ever right here in Cherokee County, Alabama. Many outdoor adventures await. Wet a hook in beautiful Wise Lake. Swing away at Cherokee Pines Golf Club. Climb to the best view around at Cherokee Rock Village. Hike the Little River Canyon National Preserve. Take a days-long splash at Pirates Bay Water Park. And much, much more. The Cherokee County Chamber of Commerce and Tourism has a full list of recommended lodging facilities, RV sites, and campgrounds. And they're all set up to suit your vacation needs, whatever they may be. So come see us from wherever you are. And if you already live right here in lovely Cherokee County, plan your summer 2023 staycation with the Chamber by visiting Cherokee-Chamber.org. We're proud to have another show sponsor, Faraway Tree Service and Sawmill. Faraway is a small, family-owned business with small-town values located right here in Cherokee County, Alabama. But they can do big things for you. Call Faraway for anything you want done to a tree, or a lot of them. You want your trees removed? Call Faraway. You want your trees cut up and milled into lumber or ground into mulch? Call Faraway. Faraway is licensed and insured and can handle any job, big or small, from tree trimming to stump grinding and everything in between. So call Faraway Tree Service and Sawmill today at 256-393-5398. Thank you to all our wonderful sponsors. So, Scott, where, where are we going from here? Okay, so we're going to do this story one more time, but just briefly, what I wanted to do, I thought the most one of the most interesting characters, of course, G. Gordon Liddy is a very interesting character who's involved in Watergate, right? But I thought that somebody uh, that really jumped out at me was uh, E. Howard Hunt. Okay. And he's the guy, again, that Katie mentioned, who is played by Woody Harrelson mm-hmm. in the White House Plumbers on, on the Max uh, app that you guys mm-hmm. think doesn't look like Howard Hunt, and I think is closer than you guys do, but whatever. At least they got the hairline right. Um, Howard Hunt was, I just thought he was a really, he did everything that he did in, in the Watergate matter. He thought he was doing in the interest of national security. He thought he was being a patriot to his country. Mm -hmm. He was born in New York in 1918. He died in uh, January of 07 at the age of 88, a year after writing the book that I read called American Spy. And it turns out that he sort of had that book ghost written for him. It was kind of a uh, yes, they do. Yeah, a rehash of a book he'd written back in the 70s in the middle of all this called uh, Undercover. That was in 77. But it told a lot of the story from his perspective, and some of it was updated because of, you know, it's 30 years later when, he, when it's happening again. Uh, Publishers Weekly called the book Breezy and Unrepentant, so not a fantastic review from Publishers Weekly. But Howard Hunt. Howard Hunt was a good writer. He'd written 73 books in his life, most of them spy novels, loosely based on the things that he had been involved in Mm -hmm. in 21 years in the CIA. Mm -hmm. A lot of them he wrote under pseudonyms so that he wouldn't be tied to the possible facts of 
what he was addressing. He was in the Navy in World War II. He was in the Army Air Corps in World War II after uh, being discharged from the Navy. And he was one of the first members of what became the CIA, which was called the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, before the CIA was created in '47 by President Truman. Like I said, he spent 21 years as a professional spy. Uh, a lot of those years he spent in South America. So the scenes in the Watergate Plumbers, where he's speaking fluently in Spanish to those Cuban Americans, that's spot on because he spent a lot of his time. He was in Mexico, he was in Uruguay, he was in Guatemala. Okay. So he spoke Spanish fluently. Mm-hmm. So that's dead on. Uh, he was involved in the Bay of Pigs inv- uh, invasion, the planning of it. And we didn't get into that last week and we're not going to get into it now. But that played in the fact, played into the fact that he was hired by, by Creep to become one of the plumbers because he knew where a lot of bodies were buried and he was no fan of the Kennedy administration because if you read about the Bay of Pigs, Kennedy kind of pulled the plug on it at the last minute and caused it to fail. At least that's what the people who planned it for two years will tell you. And Hunt was one of those guys. Okay. After the Bay of Pigs, uh, Hunt spent several years in the CIA in a, in a department that was probably illegal because the CIA is not supposed to be allowed to operate on U.S. soil. But his job was to subsidize and manipulate newspaper publishing organizations in the country to try and benefit government policy. So if he could whitewash something or propagandize something in the news or release a story, that's what he did on behalf of the CIA, and that's, you're, they're not supposed to do that um, at all. Uh, his career stalled in the 60s, really, because of the Watergate, I mean, because of the Bay of Pigs thing. Um, but then he got involved. He was a Brown University alumnus, and Brown is in, what, Rhode Island? Oh. I think Brown is in Cambridge, Rhode Island, a small, one of those uppity universities. But he was a graduate of Brown, and in the 60s in D.C., he got to know a member of the Nixon administration. And that's how he got sucked into this whole creep thing. Providence, Rhode Island. Is it Providence, Rhode mm-hmm. Island? Okay. In uh, Cambridge and Massachusetts. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that where... Um, Cambridge is... That's Harvard where is. MIT, Harvard, both. Cambridge, right? It's know. close to Boston. Yeah, you're right. Um, anyway, it was, it was then that he, when he met this person at this one of these Brown University alumni organizations. He got involved in the committee to reelect the president and the plumbers. That's where he met Gordon Liddy for the first time. And he described, I've got that somewhere, how he described G. Gordon Liddy. I'll, I'll get to it in a minute. Um, okay, so Hunt had retired from the CIA in 1970. So in 71, when he was hired to work at Creep, he was an independent contractor, so to speak. So he had retired, like he'd served, or he was like, just like done. He had his 20 years in. He'd been 21 years from 49 to 70 at the CIA. And so he resigned. And then, you know, now he's a, now he's a independent contractor. Spy, I guess. And so that's how Hunt came to be involved in the break-in of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office in 71. And we talked about that earlier. That's when they were trying to find out if the communists were spreading American military secrets. But by 72, the plumbers had moved over to Creep to help 
Nixon get reelected. And so that's how they ended up breaking into the Watergate. So same set of skills, just pointed in a different direction in 72. Here's something that Hunt wrote in his book about Watergate. He said that the road to Watergate was traveled in such small incremental steps that by the time the situation arose, the break-in seemed a natural thing to do. Aren't all vices the same? Mm -hmm. And again, it was national security. That was how they explained the fielding break-in. That was the Watergate break-in. They were all cloaked in concerns over national security. To me, it bothers me more that they broke into the doctor's office. Yes, no, Mm -hmm. that is where I'm stuck to. Yeah. Well, that was the thing that they were... Deathly, deathly afraid was going to come out. They weren't so worried about the Watergate break-in, but if anybody spoke about what happened at Fielding's office the year before, that's when it was all going to hit the fan, and so that's what they were trying to keep from coming out. Yeah. Oh, here it is. Uh, here's where I was going to tell you guys what Hunt's first impression of G. Gordon Liddy was. He was a wired, wisecracking extrovert who seemed a good candidate for decaffeinated coffee. Okay. <laughs> good. Yeah, I've met. Yeah, I've met. So I'm, I'm starting to think that Justin Thoreau's uh, version of Gordon Liddy in the White House Plumbers episode on HBO Max is fairly accurate. Yeah. <laughs> that guy needs a nap. Mm-hmm. Um. Oh, and speaking of, you know, you told me to watch the caffeine because of my weird dreams. And I have been, and it's working. Oh, yay. No more weird dreams this week. Not a Dr. Kelly strikes again. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) So this one man, Dan Ellsberg, this, this is the way that Liddy and Hunt rationalize. This one man, Ellsberg, has decided that the legitimate elected government of the United States is suddenly criminal well, that makes him a traitor. You can't do that. You can't subvert the democratic, democratically elected government. That's their justification. In the Nixon administration and Hunt and Liddy, that's, that's how they look at Ellsberg. So Ellsberg becomes the focus because he is that hero in the news media. They love him. because he's, he's sticking it in the eye of the man, of the government. But what he's done was the truth. He, he, didn't, sure. he didn't just write his own opinion. Yeah. The the Pentagon Papers are not it's not an opinionated piece, is it? It's no, a, it's an account. It's it's supposed what, to be an accurate, yeah, nonpartisan account of what happened. Every step of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, of uh, Vietnam, like the, but just escalation. Oh. Every step of escalation during yes Vietnam, yes, but, but no, yeah. every time it escalated. Why? What precipitated that? What was the thought process? How long did it take? Who decided that? Mm-hmm. So just Where did the money timeline. come from? Just It was basically a timeline of American involvement in Vietnam. And that doesn't make you a traitor. That's, that's being an American. I mean, we... That's we, what the Supreme Court decided. We can question our government's decisions. Mm-hmm. And we can say, yeah. we don't like what you're doing... Because of X, Y, Z. And that doesn't make you a traitor. It didn't then. It doesn't now. I agree. And there's a, there, there was this one conversation that was among those many taped conversations in the White House that all came out after the audio tape system was revealed by Butterfield. Uh, Haldeman is telling Nixon, look, 
and this is about the Pentagon Papers. He said, average Joe American doesn't understand all of this gobbledygook. That's true. It, it doesn't make any sense right. to them how we got into Vietnam. What it tells average Joe is you can't trust the government. They will lie to you. And that's why we have to shut it down. <laughs> because. Because back we then. Are still, we are trying to lie and we want them to believe it. Well, <laughs> And they're too dumb. <laughs> back then, that was an unthinkable revelation that the that the government would lie to you. People yeah. still trusted the government in the 70s in yeah. this country. Now it's just... And Watergate is the reason why we don't anymore. Yeah, now, now that's just Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, you're right. We, people say they don't trust the government. Oh, and according to Hunt, you know that scene in The Plumbers where uh, Liddy brings out the phonograph and it's got a Hitler recording on it? Yeah. That's That was accurate. That is accurate. That happened. He did bring Hunt that says out. in his book, Liddy, loved, he listened to that shit all the time. Imagine that. Again, for fun. That's yeah. your pastime. Mm-hmm. And then you model your facial hair after the guy. So. <laughs> really influential. That was a, um, it, it was a terrible, terrible choice in facial hair. So it was around this time after we've, we, we're, we've progressed past the Pentagon Papers. Yep. But Liddy and Hunt are working together. Yes. And that's when they come up with Project uh, Operation Gemstone. Again, something yes. else from the mm-hmm. from the series. And they do come up with this series of possible ways to screw with the Democrats in yes. the lead up to the election. Mm-hmm. And they've got a million dollar budget and they come back and say, we don't have that much to spend. So uh, no prostitutes, no one way mirrors on the uh, on the boat off mm-hmm. the coast of Miami. But we will let you break into the Democratic National Headquarters and bug their offices. And we're here's $250,000 to do that. Okay. And it turns out that John Mitchell, the former attorney general who had moved over to mm-hmm. run the campaign was the guy who said, go on that, mm-hmm. which is, and, which would all come show. out. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. uh, when little did he know it'd be four times and yeah. Right. Yeah, they had no idea how horribly wrong that was going to go. Another example of what Hunt went through during that time, in May of 1972, when Alabama Governor George Wallace was shot in Maryland while campaigning as a third-party candidate for president, the White House wanted to send Hunt to Brimmer. Arthur Brimmer was the man who shot George Wallace. They wanted to send Hunt to his apartment in Milwaukee and have him plant evidence in the apartment that would make it look like Bremer had been hired by the Democrats to shoot Wallace. Good gracious. There's our Alabama tie, right? Yeah, that, there it is. And it, the 1976 film Taxi Driver yeah. with Robert De Niro is basically uh, modeled after Arthur Bremer. Arthur Bremer was just a nut who wanted to be famous, kind of like John say, Hinckley. Obviously, because... Yeah. He He's was going to shoot either. <laughs> they found notes that he said, and I would love to do the Arthur Brimmer story sometime on this podcast. And there's a good Alabama connection since it was Governor Wallace. Yeah. But he wanted to shoot either Wallace or Nixon. He didn't care. He didn't have any political motivation to okay. shoot a political candidate. He just wanted to. He wanted to get one. Yeah. He just wanted to be famous for shooting somebody. Allegedly, when they dragged him off uh, after Wallace was shot in that shopping center parking lot, he shouted out, how much do you think my autobiography will be worth? <laughs> he just wanted to be famous or infamous, I guess. Yeah, I think, yeah that's the better word. Yeah. <laughs> um, another thing that happens in the uh, series on HBO where uh, Hunt and one of his compatriots get locked into a closet mm-hmm. and they have to 
pee in a scotch bottle, that happened. Good Lord. That's, that's real. Um, oh, and, and the day of the final break-in, the, the June the 17th, the one where they got caught, Hunt had found out about the tape on the door. Somebody had come back and reported, hey, uh, or maybe it was over the walkie-talkies. Hey, they pulled the tape off, but don't worry about it. I think it's just a janitorial staff. They do that a lot in high-rise buildings like this because they don't have keys late at night. So it lets them get out to dump the garbage and come back in. So let's just go ahead with it. And Hunt was like, eh, we should probably call the whole thing off. But he got outvoted on who, that. Who everybody else voted to keep the, going? The Cuban-Americans needed to perform the burglary in order to get paid. And Liddy wanted to impress the higher-ups, Magruder and Young. He wanted to show them that he could pull this thing off and do what they wanted him to do. So it went ahead. Hmm. And we all know how that turned out. Um, good idea. And literally the day after it happened, Howard Hunt is at his home and the phone rings. And it is Washington Post reporter Bob Woodward wanting to know why his name is in the address book of one of the guys who's been captured the night before breaking into the Watergate Hotel. What does he say? Good God. And hung up the phone. No. <laughs> what? <laughs> Just not That's it. good on the fly there. You yeah. would think someone who's been a spy might be a little. I know there's at that. so a many faster thinking on the feet. And I watched the the thing on HBO, thinking, all right, they've got to be taking some liberties with this story, but mm. they really didn't. He said because over the course of all of this research that I've done, everything that happened in that five part miniseries, they might have played it up just a tick, but right. it happened. <laughs> All of the stupid things happened. Good God. It's uh, two days after the break-in, the Post, the Washington Post, has already reported that James McCord is connected to the committee to re-elect the president, probably because of what Martha Mitchell said (laughs) to somebody somewhere. But that's already out. Uh, And then the the Nixon-Haldeman thing on the 23rd, that's the smoking gun. That's on an audio tape. They're talking about Hunt when they have that conversation about getting the money together to pay these people off. When when, uh, Dean says it's going to take a million dollars over the next two years to take care of these people, he's talking about Howard Hunt Mm -hmm. because he expects to be paid. Again, it's not blackmail in his mind. It's what the CIA would have done for him if he'd been captured in the middle of a mission. And he's so used to being a spy that I guess all of that gets blurred. Yeah. That, that it, it, he's he's a, got a spy mentality about how he's going to be compensated for his efforts. Mm-hmm. That's all he's trying to get at is, how are you going to take care of my family now that I've been caught doing this job for you? Mm-hmm. Which makes sense. I mean, we keep yeah, saying sure. that. Yeah. It does. Yeah. yeah. But Hunt went to prison to keep quiet. Lit, everybody did except McCord. Mm-hmm. All of the Cuban-Americans did. Liddy did. Hunt did. McCord was the only one who rolled over and started talking at that point. Oh, and then in the middle of all of this, Hunt's wife was killed in a plane crash in December of 1972. Oh. Have you not seen that episode yet? Mm-mm. Yeah, I guess so. Watch episode Spoiler alert. four of five. Yeah, his wife is killed in a plane crash mm. uh, in Chicago. That's sad. And, uh, I liked her. She has a lot of money in her possession. <laughs> she had $10,000 in her possession, but Howard Hunt tells, and of course the, the innuendo is that she was headed off to pay off some member of the, of the Watergate break-in crew 
or their family or whatever. But uh, Hunt says in his book that that's not the case, that, that that was actually money that was family money that they had socked away and that her sister was getting involved in the restaurant business and they were going up to help like they were going to invest in her restaurant. And that was what the $10,000 was for. Who knows? Sense. It doesn't matter. Well, look, we've already established that this guy is not a quick thinker on his feet. That's true. It's probably true. Right? But his <laughs> wife was, it turns out, bless her heart and rest her soul, because right before she got on that plane, she walked over to an airport vending machine and for $2.50 bought $250,000 of life insurance. And we have discussed that. That that was common. That that was a thing. You would buy life insurance yeah. before you got on a plane. Mm-hmm. Out of a vending machine. It was common. It's still common today in Japan and Taiwan, according to insurancebusinessmagazine.com, which I looked up this morning. Okay. And in 1963, in the United States, Teletrip Insurance Mm -hmm. collected $3.4 million in premiums and paid $1.4 million in losses. So that made $2 million in 63. Lucrative business. Did her policy pay out? It did. That's how Hunt lived for a year and a half and paid off his attorney's fees and sent his uh, two of his four kids to college okay. with the money that he got from that settlement, from her death. So now I hate that, um, you know, they, they play up his daughter and, and they don't make her part of comedy or anything. Yeah. I mean, but um, they talk about struggles that she was having because she had had a car accident. Was that in fact true? Yeah, that it was. he had a daughter who, yeah. who had a car accident? It and, was. And that's unfortunate. It I was. That, but they did not really, they didn't poke fun at it. No, they didn't. In my opinion. They didn't use it for, for humor in any way, but they did. It was another just element of, of accuracy. What this guy was going yeah, through at the time. It absolutely was. And probably a big, just another point to drive home. It was a big motivator for him to be employed and to, and to do these things mm-hmm. to make money for sure. his family. Um, within a month of, uh, his wife's death, Hunt was in court again. He spent the next 11 months in and out of courtrooms fighting for his freedom and fighting for what he thought was right. In the end, Hunt was sentenced to 35 years in prison wow. on March the 23rd, 1973. Now, that's a, that's a sentence that, according to federal statute, if you have agreed to cooperate with the government, that is a provisional sentence, but that is the maximum. They start you at the maximum for the crime you've been convicted of. So the maximum for his crime, I guess, obstruction of justice or whatever, was 35 years. Wow. Now, when you, when you cooperate with the government and you testify against, uh, or at the grand jury or to the Senate Watergate Committee, then we'll take so that into consideration. at your sentence. Yeah. That's he right. ended up with eight years, but, and he ended up serving 33 months in prison. So not much less than Liddy. Yeah. Um, and again, it was April of that year when Nixon announced all of those uh, re- uh, resignations. Cox got fired. November of 73, Hunt went before the judge one more time. And that's when he, after he had cooperated with the grand jury and the Senate committee, it, it was reduced to eight years. Um, the trial of those other conspirators, Hunt had testified against Haldeman and Ehrlichman and Mitchell. They all got shorter sentences than he did. Like the, I think Ehrlichman served 19 months in a country club prison in Texas somewhere. How come they got less than him? Better lawyers. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. No. More political pull. Had been around longer, knew more people. Yeah. Um, like I said, Hunt did eventually 33 months in prison. A total of 19 White House officials did time for the Watergate break-in and the subsequent cover-up 
And Liddy did the most, like we said earlier, four years before Carter uh, pardoned him, quote, in the interest of equity and fairness, since his sentence was so much longer but, than anyone else's had but been. But in the interest of equity and fairness, he acted like a total idiot yeah, in court. He did. Mm-hmm. And if you're in court and the judge can't do that to, to make you behave. That's all he's got. You know, exactly. It's contempt. I'm going to read, uh, Gordon Liddy wrote a book called Will, W-I-L-L, about all of this. And I think I read it in college, but it's been so long that I don't remember. I remember that I had a buddy who was a really big G. Gordon Liddy fan who listened to his syndicated conservative radio show every day. Wow. Um, And I know you wouldn't think that Charles and I would have anything in common, and we did not have that in common, but a lot of other things. But I remember that my friend Charles was a big fan of G. Gordon Liddy. So I want to read that book. Let's not give Charles his last name. We will. We don't want to say that he's a G. Gordon Liddy fan. Charles Sharpless. At this. And Mobile. (laughs) (laughs) My good friend, Charles. My former good friend, Charles. I guess I should have said uh, off the record, Scott. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, you forgot that part. Um, and, and so we're winding down now and it's like Hunt said in his book or his ghostwriter said in his book you can add Watergate to the events in this country that you can ultimately blame on Vietnam anti-war demonstrations led to campus unrest and then campus killings like at Kent State and then to the release of the Pentagon Papers it created a bunker mentality in the White House sort of an us against them that was the attitude that led to the actions that E. Howard Hunt found himself wrapped up in all of which ultimately ended up with the only presidential resignation in United States history Uh, as the book says in its closing Nixon's legacy of malfeasance is manifested in a diminished shit. Let me start over. As is mentioned in the closing of Hunt's book, Nixon's legacy of malfeasance is manifested in a diminished respect for the presidency and suspicion of government itself, a handprint to the face of America that is enduring and unforgivable. Wow. And that's all we are going to say about the Watergate case. If you want to learn any more, knock yourselves out. I'm done with it. I don't want to learn anymore. Scott, I'm glad you, I did. You've done an incredible job. Thank I'm glad you I so learned much. it. I thought I knew it yeah. and I didn't and I learned a lot. So maybe if I maybe we maybe we have helped other people who know the periphery of the Watergate story to get down into the meat of the sandwich. If you want to go any further, good luck with that. Yes. Thank you, Scott. Awesome job. All right. These past off. couple of weeks. You've been drinking again. I've, I don't have a beverage. Oh, that's unfortunate. It is. Um, are we going to give away anything for next week? Or are we going to talk about anything else? No. Leave nope. us a, a happy review somewhere. Five stars. And say something nice about us. Is that it? Are we done? We're done. Good night, everybody. Johnny.